He's the first Australian to win the Giro d'Italia, and he joins Cadell Evans as the only Australians to win a Grand Tour. This year, he's headed to the Tour de France for the first time. He joined us today from his home just after the Volta Catalunya as he prepares for the rest of his season. Please welcome Jai Hindley to this week's Bobby and Jens. All right, everyone. Jai Hindley, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Well, you know, we've we've had you on our list for a while, so we're super excited. But uh, yeah, let's start off. Like, where are you right now? What are you doing at the moment? Um, yeah, I'm just uh, home in Andorra. Um, just, uh, yeah, just training. I did Volta Catalunya last week and was actually a bit sick after that and was in a bit of a hole. It was a pretty tough race. Um, so yeah, just like putting the pieces back together, recovering and, um, yeah, just, uh, full prep for the tour now. This, uh, with your little sickness now, did your race program change a little bit or you follow your plan with the future racings? like you planned it earlier this year yeah it's um still just the same still the same plan um yeah i just had like a bit of a cold but it wasn't anything too crazy and uh yeah it was right after the race so i actually timed it pretty well <laughs> um but yeah no nah, all, all good now back on track and um yeah like i said just like full prep for the for the tour now so it's yeah just like head down Get the hard work in, basically. See, you know, the good thing, Jai, is when you're not racing, you have no excuse but to be able to watch the cobbled classics. I mean, that was about as close as my DSs and team would let me get was like my sofa. Um, so I'm sure you watched the Tour of Flanders recently. Um, I hope you pay attention to the classics because they were always my favorite races, even though I never did them. But when you see some of the GC mm. guys doing those races, do you ever wonder about think about dream about doing them in the future uh nah not really <laughs> <laughs> nah not for me man like uh yeah good to watch good to watch on the couch but i mean when you know when you know how hectic some of those races would be um yeah i don't really have any <laughs> interest like being there in flanders you know what i mean in belgian racing it's like uh yeah, if you see me in belgium then i'm probably lost <laughs> and i guess there's a reason um when i was commenting on flanders apparently in the entire history it was until now only louison bobby in whatever the early 50s and eddie Merckx, who did win the tour and flanders so that's a very rare combination so <laughs> Good for you to not go there. So what will you focus on in the next weeks, your training? More time trialing, positioning, or just doing lots of intervals, time trialing, or more climbing, altitude training camp? How would our listeners have to imagine your preparation for the tour, getting long miles in, or what's on the menu? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't race now until uh, Flesh Wallon and Liège, Bastogne and Liège. So I still have, um, yeah, some weeks. Uh, but, yeah, we'll go go to those races, uh, hopefully give them a good crack. And then, um, yeah, then after that I have maybe a couple of weeks back home and then oh, a week and a half back home. And then I'll head up to altitude, normally in Andorra for a week. 
and then I'll meet the yeah most likely like the rest of the guys doing the tour uh, for a team altitude camp in in France I think in Tinya and then we'll be there for uh, maybe two weeks or just over two weeks and then uh, normally do the Dauphiné straight from altitude um, and then after Dauphiné go back to altitude again and then from there go to the tour and I so yeah. I gotta apologize <laughs> Yenzi you know he's just sitting there trying to relax and train and now you're stressing him about <laughs> with all these training questions come on I mean <laughs> Altitude camps, you don't want to start thinking about all that that stuff coming up. You know, we want to keep this a nice and lively podcast. Um, yeah. But you mentioned yeah. that you're you're in Andorra because, like you said, altitude camp. You were, you were born in Perth and now in Andorra. Um, pretty different mm. geographical locations. How'd you wind up in Andorra? And is it just like the new Girona or the new Monaco where so many athletes live now? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't actually live uh, like at altitude here in Andorra. I'm like, yeah, I live at, I don't know, uh, 1,100 meters or something, so not super high. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is a, is a really popular spot now. Like, really, a lot of guys are moving here. Um, a lot of non-European guys are moving here. I think, yeah, I think because it is such a, I don't know, it is easier to get your residency here actually. And for me, it was, uh, yeah, the guys, the Aussie guys uh, who were older than me, I mean, a lot of them had the residency here and I spoke with them and they told me about, yeah, the training, the residency, obviously, like, the tax is pretty solid. And, yeah, just in general, it's like cycling paradise, I guess. So for me, it was, like, always on the radar to, like, eventually moved there one day in the career and um yeah here i am basically <laughs> but it was funny i mean also i didn't i'd never heard of the place i mean it's not a super well-known place it's not a big country it's not exactly like a normal country let's say and yeah i think first time i heard of it was when i was like a maybe like a junior rider and Cam Meyer, I think he was, I think he was one of the first pros living here actually back in the day. And I remember him coming to, yeah, it was like a junior rider. He came out to the velodrome one night and was just chatting. And obviously someone asked like, yeah, where do you live in Europe? And he said, yeah, in Andorra. <laughs> and I just, I was like, yeah, what's that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, that was like the first time I heard about it. And it's sort of like been on my radar ever since. And then, yeah, I mean, can't live in Oz as a pro bike rider. You got to live in Europe. So here I am. So, um, I always ask myself um, for the people in Girona, but now up there, do you have sometimes moments where you, you race Sunday, you like a tough, tough race, you come home, and then next Monday, 10 a.m. in the morning, you do grocery shopping with your uh, girlfriend or wife, and you see the same bike rider again you just raced against all week? Would, don't you sometimes have moments to go, uh, I don't need to see them again? 
or <laughs> you live far away from each other and you don't bounce into each other and you don't run into each other all the time. No, I mean, I think in Andorra, it's like much bigger than a place like Girona, for example. I think in Andorra, yeah, you don't, you don't really see, actually like on the street, I never really see anyone. Um, maybe on the bike, then you see guys going the other way, but... Um, yeah, honestly, man, like I've never bumped into anyone in the supermarket. Maybe I just uh, buy my groceries at a weird time. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's um, you know, it can be pretty low key if you want to be. I think if you want to meet up with people all the time and catch up with people and see other guys, and for sure, it's like easy to do. But I don't know, I'm a pretty low key person. Let's say, like I don't, uh, I just like keeping to myself and write my own personal space and everything. So yeah, I just do that. Well, going through your Palmares from your younger days, when I was doing a little bit of research on your history, I see that you've been racing <laughs> with some of the, some very familiar names for a very long time, even since you were a junior under 23. Um, some have made it and some haven't. And I'm curious because I have a, a guy's name in mind, but I'm curious to hear um, what do you think, being almost 27 years old, what it takes to have longevity in this sport? Uh, just hunger. Just hunger. Like, pretty much that's it. I think if you're really hungry for it, you can do whatever you want. You know what I mean? Um yeah be it like make it as a pro and then once you get to that level then trying to win or succeed at the biggest races in the world yeah i think ultimately it all just comes down to hunger and how bad you want it and how much work you're willing to do and everything that revolves around that for you as an Australian, that's a very long way from home would it help you to bring a piece of home with you or you, uh, nah, wherever I lay my head down is home for me. Or would it help you to have more, whatever, parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters living close to you for your longevity? You know, that you, hey, this is my little Australia, outside of Australia. Mm. Would that help you? Or you go, nah, I'm, I'm good the way it is. Yeah, I mean, as a as an Aussie, it's like it's like that. I mean, you can't, you can't be a pro bike rider in Australia, unfortunately. <laughs> and... Yeah, the sooner you realize that, then the easier it is. And you basically have to pack up your life uh, and move over to Europe and ideally from a, from a younger age so you can get used to it and get used to the racing and the, the culture. And, I mean, both like, yeah, Western uh, continents, let's say, but very different cultures and... Uh, I don't know, approaches to life. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, coming to Europe, like, it is very different. And, um, yeah, you, you really, like, adapt or die, basically. Like, you, yeah, it's like that. Like, the sooner you make Europe home and settle in and, um, you know, just enjoy your time here, then the easier it becomes. And, I mean, unfortunately... Yeah, all well, my family's back in, well, my immediate family's back in Australia. So, yeah. But in saying that, it's, it's not like all bad, you know what I mean? With technology now, you can, 
I can call my parents whenever I want, you know. Like I think back to, you know, back in the day, I don't know, maybe when you guys were pro even, it wasn't as easy to get in contact with with relatives. I mean, probably for you, Bobby, found it pretty hard also like getting getting in touch with people back in the States. Like couldn't have been easy, you know, but uh, I mean, it's still not easy, but it's definitely a lot easier, I would say, with like the technology we've got and um, yeah. <laughs> well, j- just to yeah. name a couple of those names, um, I was looking back in 2016 when you finished fifth in the Tour of Avenir, which was won by David mm. Godu, Bernal was fourth, Teo was sixth, and then you're racing against these guys, you know, in, in the big stage races now. But... Um, with preparing the the Giro, let's talk the Giro because I mean that is to me such a cool story, right? Like you did your first Giro in 2019, you finished second in 2020, and then you won it in 2022. Without putting words in your mouth, you experienced some of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in that three. <laughs> yeah, yeah year span um tell us a little bit about that three-year block you know of of doing the giro yeah well four-year block i mean yeah it's i don't know the giro for me it's for sure like my favorite race i would say like i've done it uh the most of all the grand tours and yeah it's given me really a lot over the years uh not just Okay, like winning was epic, but not just the winning, you know what I mean? Also the experiences I got uh, every year there was always something a bit different. Um, I mean, you look at 2019, this was like classic. We went we went there to support Tom Dumoulin. I was like, uh, yeah, actually it's a pretty, pretty surprise. I got the call up to be in the team from, from the get-go and then, uh, yeah, found myself like supporting – or trying to support one of the GC favorites in the race. I was pretty average, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was still finding my feet. And, uh, yeah, that, that year was really, uh, pretty shitty. Let's say like, um, Tom had a real bad crash and then he had to pull out and then we had other guys injured from crashes. Uh, and in the end we did I think maybe the last, I don't know, week or just over a week, we did with only four guys left in the team, which was pretty funny. Like we're down at dinner with four guys. We're on the bus with four guys. Like we, one day uh, we had two guys in the breakaway, like half the team was up the road. (laughs) Like it was super funny. And and then, yeah, Chad Hager actually won the last stage, which was in Verona. It was the same or similar TT to 2022. So that that was like really cool to finish on that sort of high after such a shit show. And then, yeah, then you go to the next year. I mean, for a kickoff, wasn't even sure if the Giro was going to happen. And then we ended up doing it in October. So it was really strange. And then... Yeah, I actually had like the best legs of my of my career to that point. And um 
I don't know. Couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? Like I, like I said, like uh, the year before, I was, uh, I don't know, a bit lost. Like I was just trying to help out the team and then going for the breakaways and this and that. And then, yeah, I think that, like over, I don't know, more of a more than twelve month period. Like I really developed a lot as a rider in terms of like physical and mental and uh just skills in general i would say really came on a lot um and then yeah i was i was like uh fighting for the win in the end you know what i mean and i was like in the pink jersey on the second last day and if you'd told me that when we started that year in sicily i would have told you you know (laughs) f off basically and um yeah, there, there, there it was. And then, so that was, that was sort of like, uh, a key moment in my career. Let's, let's put it like that. And like that opened up a lot of doors and it opened up a lot of, uh, I don't know, just self-belief, I guess, of what I could actually do as a bike rider. And then, you know, we skipped forward to 21 where I went back after being second and, you know, the Giro was in October and then we're racing again in May, the normal time. So it's like <laughs> less than less than a year we're doing the Giro again. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I had all this, <laughs> let's say, like self-expectation of wanna, what I wanted to achieve at the race and what I thought I could do and... Yeah, in the end, nothing that season went right. It was all just shit. I had crashes, I had injuries, I had illness nonstop. And I ended up going there, yeah, not in great shape, but still wanted to try and make something of the race. And then I had this uh, epic, like, saddle sore thing, which, uh, yeah, was, like, horrible, actually. And... Uh, I, I couldn't sit on the bus seat, let alone my saddle. You know what I mean? Like I really couldn't sit down at all. And then I had to pull out of the race, which was pretty devastating and had like a month off the bike and that was super grim. And, and then, yeah, then we fast forward again to 2022, went back, um, super motivated, new team, new environment, everything. And, um, yeah, again, like I had legs of my career in the, in the last week and was in the same position, like fighting for the win. And ironically, like deja vu went into the Jersey, like on the second last day before a final TT and, um yeah I mean I still can't get over that it's just like crazy and and then yeah we you know the last TT was in Verona I did the course actually in 2019 and I knew it was a good TT course for me so I was quietly confident and um yeah could take home the big win which was (laughs) I don't know still can't believe it to be honest so you seem to have a like a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the Giro. We had some good moments, some bad moments. What mm. what made you choose this year to go to the tour and not maybe take try to take another Giro 
to defend your title there? What made you choose to go a new direction? Yeah, I mean, I've got nothing but love for the Giro. <laughs> it's it's just such a nice race. But yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the thing is, like, I, I'm now into my, what, fifth or sixth, sixth year pro, I think. That's gone, like, really quick. And, um, yeah, I've never raced the Tour. And I think it's just, like, natural for every rider to want to do the Tour at some point in their career. And for me, it was always... Uh, childhood dream actually I remember watching the tour back in the day I remember watching <clears throat> actually the 2003 tour is probably like my all time like favourite to watch like it was just it was just epic you know what I mean like you just had all these big GC guys dishing it out to each other and uh, yeah from that moment on that's what I wanted to do I wanted to be be one of these guys on TV like doing the biggest bike race in the world so yeah I mean at one point it would be super nice to go back to the Giro and you know try to defend the title that would be really special but yeah I think it's I think it's also natural to to want to aim at something else and you know have different goals and just do something different um and yeah with the tour I mean you also do different races maybe leading up to it like the Dauphiné or yeah I don't know maybe Paranese in the end I didn't do Paranese but um yeah it's like a different time of year different preparation races so yeah it's just something new and new experience and that's that's what I wanted basically well, I know we'll probably talk a little bit more about the tour and you gave a very good rendition of that four-year block of your Giro experience, but there's one thing I need to ask you, right? Mm. 2020, you, you said it. In 2020, you had the jersey going into the final time trial and you lost the jersey. You DNS'd in the next year. And then you come back in 2022 last year and have the same scenario where you're in the Jersey in the final time trial. I just need to know where you were mentally and what you learned through not allowing deja vu to happen again, because performance is much more than the physical. It's the mental, it's the emotional. What have, what did you learn or what clicked right then and there that you will be able to take to the tour de France? Yeah, I mean, I think I think for sure the difference between 2020 and 2022 was just experience. Like, and I knew I knew what was happening. You know, in 2020, I was just uh, yeah, I don't know. I was just like surprised that I was in the pink jersey. I mean, I think I kept a lid on it like pretty well, but I was I was still uh, just like overwhelmed a bit by the whole thing and. Yeah, I mean, you just can't prepare for that. But that's my point. You know, that's, that's what I want to get at right there is you were overwhelmed and you had the chance to be overwhelmed again, but you fought through it. Was there anything there that that you can hold on to or that you learned in that moment in, in 2022 of saying, nope, this is not going to happen the same way? Because a lot of people could have freaked out right there and you didn't. <laughs> yeah but I, I mean I, I don't think I freaked out in 2020 either but 
in 2022, I just, I'd been in that situation before and it was like, I knew, I knew what I had to do. I wasn't overthinking it. I was just like, yeah, trying to stay as calm as possible, as cool as possible. And, and as confident as I could be without being like cocky or arrogant or something, you know what I mean? I knew like, yeah, shit, if I got the, if I got the Jersey, then, you know, the legs must be all right. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I just backed myself and, you know, I knew I'd done a lot of hard work. I'd done work on the TT bike and I was confident with the equipment we had, I was confident in myself. I was confident in the the guys in the car and the radio behind me. So it was, yeah, I was just, I was just confident. Of course I was like nervous and, you know, sometimes you have all these crazy thoughts that are going through your head. Like shit, what if, what if I slip on a corner? What if I puncture or, you know, there's a lot of what ifs, but yeah. Also what if uh, none of that shit happens? <laughs> then I win the Jura, you know what I mean? That's also like pretty sick. So yeah, it was like that, man. I was just, it was just like a confidence thing. I just had like a lot more confidence and a lot more like self-belief than, than what I did in 2020. Maybe also um, because you had a few years to grow on it and to age and get a little wiser. And do you actually know that um, last year winning the Giro Italia at the age of 26, you were, with all the respect, you were the grandpa of all the Grand Tour winners. You, you, you yeah. realize that Vingegaard is young and even a pool as well. Um, yeah. Like, Isn't that insane that so many young kids just ruling the sport and the Grand Tours? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy actually. Um, and yeah, also last year was all guys that had never won Grand Tours before either, which was pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, the young guys these days, like, what do you want me to say? I mean, I've talked about it like quite a bit actually, but yeah, I mean, they're just super impressive these guys coming through um and yeah i mean just dominating the sport really and yeah i think it's just just the way that the sport's going it's just going to be like that from now on guys are going to be getting younger and younger turning pro and uh getting big results straight out the gates you know what i mean Like for me, it really took like a long time to find my feet. Like, yeah, until 2020, actually. Until that point, I had like, I had some good rides and some good results, but yeah, I wasn't winning. I wasn't winning tour stages and I definitely wasn't winning grand tours overall. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's just the way that the sport's evolving and changing and um, just like that. I... I've, I don't know, chapeau to these guys, they're like really phenomenal. We'll be right back after this short break. Much of the world thinks as cycling as an individual sport, but I don't think we need to look much further back than what your first year Bora Hansgrohe teammate did for you last year in the Giro, Leonard Kemna, when he just lit it on fire on that final mountain stage and you were able to to really distance yourself from Carapaz. But it's a team sport. How do you think a team is created? Um, 
yeah, for sure. It starts before you even get on the bike. I think it's, I think the atmosphere within the team is a massive part and that's something that I've really enjoyed uh, while being a Bora, you know, it's like every time you go to a race, it's like, you're not, it doesn't feel like you're just meeting up with guys that ride bikes and like, you know, oh, teammates, oh yeah, you know, it's like you're actually meeting up with good dudes, mates, like really nice people and yeah, the atmosphere is like really good. I would, I would say like the atmosphere at that whole Juro race last year was, was mega. Like, and not just within the riders, also the staff. We had a really good group of staff there and really like everyone was um, just, yeah, doing doing the most they could do for, for each other. You know what I mean? It was like really cool. Um, yeah, I think... I think the atmosphere for me is like a big, it is a big thing. And then for sure, you know, on the bike, it's just, um, yeah, like it's a massive team sport. And I think, yeah, as, as like a leader, I think, you know, it's really nice if you can appreciate like what the guys do for you, because I've been, I've been a leader and I've been a domestique and I've, you know, I've worked for guys that, really appreciate everything and then I've worked for guys who maybe yeah take it for granted a bit um so yeah I think you know whenever I'm leader at a race or protected rider or something like you know if a guy gets me a bottle I appreciate it <laughs> maybe it's something like really insignificant but yeah I think if if you're a domestic and and your leader is like really thankful genuinely for for what you do and bring to the table then it's, yeah it goes a long way and i think yeah just the whole the whole vibe of that within that duo team last year was awesome but just in general as well with the with bora it's it's a really nice atmosphere to be a part of that so much of you uh, what you just said reminded me of you know bobby and me when we were younger right bobby These years we had, we were a good team because everybody was just willing to go the extra mile for each other, just like you just said, uh, Jay. But um, talking about teams and team spirit, do you have a say in what team goes to the tour? Like bus driver, mechanics, masseurs or riders. Uh, you have a word in that or it's the team deciding everything? Uh, I mean, I think, I think all riders can give like input on, you know, what riders they think would be good and what staff they think would be good. But ultimately like it's the, the team that makes the call. And I think that's for the best, actually. I think if you have, you know, one guy dictating, you know, the whole thing as a rider, then it's, um, yeah, I think it's better that the, the team makes the calls, makes the final calls, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a hot topic right now of respect in the Peloton. And I think that this generation is kind of at a disadvantage because we had the same issues back, you know, back way back in the day. But there wasn't social media everywhere. It wasn't caught on every single camera. But, you know, you're almost 27 years old and you're that means that you're no longer a young uh, rider. You're, you're not in the young rider competition. So you've been knee deep in the sport for quite a while now. You're a Grand Tour winner. 
So I would like to hear your perspective on that hot topic of respect in the Peloton these days. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I don't know. It's definitely getting less and less, I would say. It's more like whatever goes now. And I think probably over the next few years, we'll be even more and more like that, unfortunately. But yeah, it's just the way it is. I mean, uh, I think it's like that because there's no real like, I don't know, patron of the Peloton, you know what I mean? There's no guy to just like st- like pull everyone up and stay like, stop being dickheads, guys. Like, you know, that doesn't really go down anymore. It's It's really like whatever goes actually, which... Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit sad, but it's also just like the way the way the, the sport's evolving. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm also not, I wouldn't say I was like the guy that's going to stop a dangerous race or something like that. I don't think that's really up to me. And I think probably a lot of guys think the same and that's probably why nothing ever ends up happening. But... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's like, it's pretty controversial, I would say. A lot of the younger guys, they, no one's going to like, I don't think anyone's going to go to the front of the bunch and just like stop the race or neutralize it unless it's like really chronic, (laughs) you know? Yeah, it's a funny one. I don't know, but I just see it going that way and probably less and less respect in the years to come. Yeah. Um, but, would, yeah. would you feel you get treated a little different, a little more respect because you're Grand Tour winner or people go, I don't care who you are. I just need this spot right now here. Or is there a little more mutual respect for somebody like you? Um, yeah, it's pretty much like whatever goes. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, it's like that. I mean, even, uh, I mean, if you look at races now, like, you know, back in the day, you would, the break would go and then the teams would line up and you'd have like first, second, third on GC, maybe fourth. Like now it's whatever team's riding the front and then second team is like whatever team gets there first and like wants to fight everyone basically <laughs> it's it's like pretty much like that there's no yeah i mean it, i also understand it in the end why yeah why should why should a team let another team in or why should this guy let that guy in if he's in that jersey for sure like if you're if you're with your mates or something like that and they're in other teams and yeah maybe it's a bit different but um, it really is like a dog fight now. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's so strange because so many of the DSs and even team managers were ex-professional riders. You know, they had this, this is the way that we've done it. This is the way we're going to do it. We're never going to change. Um, but obviously they've been forced to change and think in a different way. Right. Where do you think this mentality shift has come from, from the DS and managerial roles? And do the riders have a stronger voice these days than, than in the past? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know why it's changed like it has. Um, yeah, I guess it is just becoming less traditional. 
I mean, it was always like quite a traditional sport. If you think about it, lots of unwritten rules, lots of respect to some guys and yeah, it was like that, but now it's just, just changed a lot. I don't know. I, I don't know why it's changed, but it has. And yeah. And, um, I mean, it's also become, uh, super analyzed actually as a sport. When I watch social media, it's like turning into, I don't know, like basketball or something with all these stats, like, you know, oh, this guy's done this, this guy's done that. Um, oh, he's ridden at this power, you know, like it's just super analyzed and lots of information, lots of data. Everyone knows everything. Um, yeah, I mean, it's good for the sport in a way, like has a lot of publicity, but, uh, I guess it's just evolved and it's just become a lot more modern. I think it was always quite traditional and like an old school type sport, whereas now it's sort of caught up a bit, I would say. You know, there's like a lot of media, there's a lot of articles, a lot of press, there's a lot of information on it, whereas maybe before it was like uh, a bit more low-key, I don't know. Okay, here's an easy and relaxed question for you. How did you celebrate your Giro Italia win? You stayed down there with the boys, had a dinner at night, or you went home straight uh, to see whatever friends and family back home, or how did you celebrate? And how long did you celebrate? For an entire week, or? Yeah, just, um, I mean, we had a pretty good after party straight after the race with Bora. That was, like, real nice, actually. In Verona there, they, yeah, got, like, a restaurant and... A lot of the VIPs and the sponsors came in and yeah, it was really cool. Pretty late night, but yeah, it was like really awesome. And then, um, yeah, I actually stayed in holiday, uh, in Italy for a holiday for like a week afterwards, just doing a bit of a road trip around because I didn't see enough of the country <laughs> and yeah, that was pretty sweet. And, um, and then yeah, after that it was like back to work, man, because I, was also doing the Vuelta and I, yeah, I don't know. I was pretty ambitious and wanted to have a crack at the Vuelta also. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I learned a lot, but yeah, I think to do two grandies in one year for, for GC is, it's a pretty tall order. I think, I think whoever does that next, yeah, like hats off. <laughs> yeah. I, I gotta ask this question because you just kind of reminded me of it. You know, the team meetings, the pre-race briefings, like I remember mm. starting and it was like, we didn't have buses. We didn't have trucks. It was like, you just all mobbed into one stinky hotel room and, you know, the swan yours were in there rubbing your legs, put it on start oil, whatever. And it was always the same thing. Oh, the wind comes from here. There's a climb here, but really you didn't get any information. It was pretty much regurgitated over and over and over again to the point where towards the middle, I was just like, why do we even have these? But can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about what that meeting in the bus entails right now, the, the level of detail? Because you guys all have the race books. I mean, that was really the only, um, I mean, Do you guys still have race books? Do they give you the little pamphlets so that you can actually read them? Or? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They give the race for some races give like the the stem stickers also. Um yeah, they they still they still give all that stuff, which is pretty funny. Also the the numbers and they give you like pins. Um but yeah. <laughs> no. Uh but so it is it is still like traditional in that aspect, you know. But yeah, but the meetings are pretty dialed, I would say. They're really like um you know, the DS is probably the the weeks before or you know the the days before the race they look at all the stages they look at the whole course uh on velo viewer normally which is like yeah this website where you can fly through the course and have a look over everything you can see the climbs the gradients uh you know the corners like really everything um and then you have other apps where you can put you can upload the course onto that and then you can combine that with the current like weather conditions you know so you can really be looking at the direction of the wind like (laughs) while you're in the car driving not like the night before so if it changes you know maybe it's a bit different like really in real time you can you can be looking at all this stuff so yeah it's super dialed everyone knows every shit corner everyone knows every steep climb tricky descent everything and all i would say probably all riders are hearing this on the radio so that's just it's really like uh you know you can feel it like in the bunch actually when 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 your ds says like okay like in i don't know 10k we're, we're coming up to a crucial corner then at 8k to go to that corner you can just feel like everyone getting nervous in the bunch and then yeah 6k to go you can see teams like already moving full gas 5k to go it's just like all out war and then yeah it's it's like that so everyone everyone knows all the information like no one's getting caught off guard or something like that like it's yeah and then that I think just leads to, yeah, I don't know, just making the pillow the way it is now, you know, because everyone knows everything. So no, there's, there's not really any surprises. <laughs> like back in the day, I mean, yeah, maybe a team would just line it up in the gutter and catch everyone off guard with the pants down. But like now that doesn't really happen. It's always like big stress and then, a big fight and the guys who are in posse make the split and the guys who aren't don't make it but for sure most likely every guy would know what was going to happen <laughs> or what what was coming so in, in in grand tours we sometimes see the stressful finishes right when did you see riders try to stay there with their protecting riders and the sprinters try to be there would you think it would help To have that, uh, I call it protection zone from three kilometers to go extended to 10 kilometers to go. Would that help a little bit? Uh, I think possibly, yeah. But then you would get the same. I think you'd still get maybe the same stress to that point. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, cyclists, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? We're, pretty, we're not like, we're not always like the most intelligent people. <laughs> like you know it's just like that i mean yeah sometimes you know that a finish is going to be just chaos and you just have to be there anyway 
you know, you have to put yourself in the mixer and like just, yeah, <laughs> you know, go for it basically. Otherwise it could be a race done. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think if you moved it out, it would, yeah, it would still be quite stressful, I'd imagine. But I think, it, yeah, it could help for sure. Could definitely help because 3K is pretty much like, yeah, as a GC rider, you're always like super keen to get under that 3K banner and it's a bit like, oh, nice 3K banner. But then you're in 3K to go, you're like in pretty good posse in the pillow and yeah, you, you look up and you see like what, are the, what these sprint trains are doing, you're like Jesus, you know? So, um, yeah, it's just, it's just like that always like doesn't matter what race it is where it is that point in the race is always just chaotic for sure i think a lot of people yeah. that i speak to that don't quite understand the sport with that barrier if it was 1k if it's 3k if it's 5k it's 10k they think that like that's the finish line but no i mean if you if you're not up there in the front and a split happens and you're going for gc even if it's a five second split or a 10 second split um it's it's just that misconceived idea that the race is over but really you still got to keep going all the way to the finish line if if you don't want to take um take time on gc and i think that stresses the gc riders out more um but going back to say one more thing is thank you for uh making me feel better and saying that you guys still need to pin on your numbers because that to me <laughs> is just ridiculous in this day and age i mean back when we were doing it yeah fine but nowadays with all the technology we have that we can't figure out a better system that just just blows my mind but Thank you for making me feel somewhat relevant still in this sport. Um, but now thinking about the future a little bit, if you could narrow down just three things, three building blocks of advice that you would give to young professional cyclists, what be, what would those three be? And only three. And it would be super interesting to ask you in this in another five or 10 years, but what, what are those three building blocks that you think is super, the most important for young cyclists getting started in our sport? Ooh, yeah. Tough question. I mean, also three things. I mean, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think probably one of the most important, if not the most is, yeah, you have to really enjoy it. Like you have to really have like a burning passion for it. You know what I mean? You have to love like riding your bike every day. I think, um, yeah, if you don't have that, then, then you're, you're in for a rough time. Like my old man always said, like, yeah, if you don't, if you don't, if you're not in it, like 110%, like really it's too hard of a sport to not do it and not be fully committed. So I think to, yeah, you just, you have to love it. It is like, a really weird and interesting sport, but it's like, it's also super nice. Um, so yeah, for sure. Passion and, and love for it. Um, yeah, I think if you want to, I don't know, succeed in, in the biggest races, then for sure, like the hunger and the drive is another important thing. I think, um, yeah, if you don't have that hunger or that drive, then, you know, it's never going to happen. Um, just like every day to get up and work hard for, for a goal or 
to yeah work hard to achieve something like you really need that drive and yeah it's like especially when it gets to like the the nitty-gritty and like the real like i don't know top level of the sport like you really need that and uh the other thing i don't know self-belief i would say just yeah you always back yourself no matter what um yeah even if even if you don't think something's possible always always go for it anyway always back yourself and yeah you know you might even surprise yourself sometimes you might even run uh second in the giro out of nowhere you know <laughs> like, like it's like that so yeah that'd be my three things i'd say It looks like I'm in charge for the easier question. Here's a split question for you. One, <laughs> do you bring a jar of Vegemite to every single race? And B, what is your guilty pleasure when it comes to food? Mm, yeah, no, I don't, I don't bring Vegemite to every race. Unfortunately, yeah, it's pretty un-Australian of me. Um, but I, yeah, I always have a jar at home, you know. Gotta gotta keep a gotta keep a jar there just in case. Um and then yeah, guilty pleasure. Oh man, it's gotta be chocolate. Really. Like I'm a sucker for chocolate, big time. I have no uh, no self-control with chocolate though. It's like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Nothing like the good old milk bar. <laughs> so Yenzi does the podcast on European time, so it's a little bit later there. And we always see him sucking mm. down something. And today he pulled out a massive bar of milk of chocolate, which I think is pretty much every cyclist's vice. So thank you for showing mm. me that, Yenzi. Now I'm hungry, even though it's you know six hours <laughs> earlier over here, but we don't sell Milka either. But guy, um, listen, man, it's getting late there. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast. We wish you all the best in the rest of the season, the Tour de France and your your future there at Bora Hansgrohe. It's been an absolute pr pleasure having you today on Bobby and Jens. Cool, guys. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Jai for being our guest. Thanks for listening and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens. Now... Jai is going to the Tour de France at age 27, the same age that both Jens and I were when we did our first Tour de France. What was the best thing you attempted once you turned 27? Let us know by messaging us at Bobby and Jens. 